0: Today, we have a special guest with us. Uh, very excited to introduce him and uh, to dig into the topic, uh, which we're going to talk today a little bit about the sociology of nationalism because uh, there has been quite a lot of discussion that has happened since in the wake of uh, my interview with Keith Woods on his channel. Um, there's, there's been the discussion of nationalism what is it, how is it defined? And this is an important topic because we don't want guys. You know, obviously nationalism is an important uh, aspect of our movement and what we're all about. But uh, in, in a large degree, guys have been kind of like talking back and forth, uh, talking past each other because uh, we may not always necessarily be talking about the same thing. So we're we're going to kind of hash it out. Talk a little bit about the history of nationalism, uh, the anthropology and sociology of it. And, uh, yeah, we'll dig into that. So just a couple of quick announcements here. Uh, The Imperium Press YouTube channel has launched. We've got two videos and a couple more coming up pretty soon. Uh, So that will be linked in the the description. Uh, We've also got uh, Imperium Press has a new book out that was released uh, last month, The Ancient Family. That's part of the Studies and Reactions series. So have a look at that. Uh, you can of course find us at imperiumpress.org So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ricardo Duchesne uh, He's a former professor of sociology, a uh, uh, fixture in our movement um, the, uh, He runs the Council of European Canadians And is the author of uh, quite a few books that have had a lot of impact in our movement Including Canada in Decay Faustian Man in a Multicultural Age and Uniqueness of Western Civilization. So, Dr. Duchesne, welcome.
1: Hello, Uh, it's great to be here and I'm looking forward to this discussion on nationalism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, did you want to kind of open the discussion, give us a little bit of background on uh, the sociology of nationalism and kind of like set up the stakes of the debate maybe because there are a number of positions that could be taken on this, um, academic positions that are fairly well established? And maybe we could just give us your own take on it.
1: All right. So um, I'm not an expert on nationalism. I could say that I know something about Western civilization. Uh, it's kind of odd to say that one is an expert on such a huge topic, an entire civilization, but that was the kind of subject that I started concentrating on after I completed my PhD and so in a certain way you could say that I know a bit more about the concept of civilizations than um, nationalism but from the moment that I started thinking about immigration and how that affects Canada and other nations and I encountered the whole debate between civic nationalism and ethnic nationalism, uh, I became interested in in this whole idea of what is nationalism. And there are many good arguments there. Um, And I would say that if I could position myself um, within the spectrum between civic and ethnic or racial or white nationalism, I would place myself in uh, a cultural nationalism, um, which I think goes beyond civic nationalism. Uh, and the person that is most associated with this view is Anthony Smith. Even though his book, his main work, he has written many works, but his, his Uh, most fundamental work is the ethnic origins of nationalism. So he uses the word ethnic. So you might think that he's an ethnic nationalist because he does emphasize a lot the ethnic and central territorial basis for the origins of nationalism. Um, I still think he's a a, a cultural nationalist. um, And the reason for that is that he defines ethnicity not in biological terms in, he doesn't do it from the perspective of sociobiology or genetic theory. Um, He does it from a a cultural perspective. Um, And there are some flaws in that. And I would say the flaws are that he should emphasize more the biological grounding. And yet still I would opt for a, cultural nationalist viewpoint because uh, <clears throat> I think the reality is that when you look at, at the world and you look particularly at the nations that we are concerned with, European nations, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, um, it's very hard to identify uh, one particular ethnic group with these nations. As you know, uh, in the case of Canada, and this is also true of Australia and the United States, uh, you had other peoples here already inhabiting these continents. And then um, even before the 1965 Immigration Act or the 1960s in Canada and the 70s in Australia, um, you, you had in the United States, blacks that have been there for a long time and then you had a multiplicity of ethnic groups arriving to these lands. Uh, As I said, even before we talk about non-white immigration, and um, if you look at nations like France, England, um, you don't have to talk about immigrants uh, from the 1950s or 1960s on, Uh, to realize that there is a degree of ethnic diversity in all these nations. So they're not ethnically homogeneous. And that's one reason why I'm uh, skeptical about endorsing a full-blown ethnic nationalist viewpoint, because it, it tends to be associated with a particular ethnic group. So in England, you have the Pigs and the Welsh and the Scots and other ethnic minorities that coalesce into what we now call England and in France. um, I mean, there is a very well-known book, um, it's From Peasants to Frenchmen, and I I recall reading this book and being very surprised that here is France, the one nation that people have always used as a model for uh, the creation of a centralized national state um, with, Uh, uh, the Napoleonic Code, and this goes back, uh, trying to create a a legal system that would apply across uh, the lands of what we call France today. Uh, There were efforts to identify a particular language as the official language and uh, a a, a national currency and so on. Uh, Nevertheless, even in the late 1800s, um, as um, Eugene Weber, that's the author of that book, Peasants into Frenchmen, uh, as he argued, um, France was still full of many dialects and people that had no conception of the French nation as they do today, finally, but not then. Um, there were localized, provincialized people that identified with their particular region at most. So... Um, <clears throat> so it's very hard even when you look at a a nation like France to talk about a a strong concept of ethnic nationalism rather what you have is an amalgamation of different dialects and uh, variations of ethnicities coming together under the idea that they belong to the French nation. So when I think about what brought all these peoples together Um, There is no doubt that the, what you might call, the modernist interpretation of nationalism, the one that Hans Kohn initiated, and then it was taken to even more extremes by people like Eric Hobsbawm, um, that uh, there is an element of truthfulness. Uh, They constructed the French nation, and they did this across the board. Uh, There was an element of construction of, of... of of pulling all these different dialects, all these variations within France together and giving them a sense, well, you now belong to the French nation. Uh, We have an official language. We have a flag for everyone. Uh, We have a school system with a national history. I mean, historians in the 19th century, um, you see the the nationalist historians, uh, in many ways, um, creating a myth Uh, as the modernists would say, about uh, France being a cohesive nation, uh, always having a sense of identity, and so on. Uh, So there was a strong element of constructing the French nation. Now, where I disagree with the modernist interpretation, and I agree with people like um, Anthony Smith, is that that doesn't mean because this construction doesn't mean that there wasn't this background uh, communality that for all the variations in dialects uh, you could conceive of of a French nation that brings all these different subethnic groups together. Um, in a way, for example, that you couldn't bring the Italians into it. Although in the borders, it gets always tricky. Uh, you know, you have areas uh, that have uh, some Germanic peoples, and these are where the conflict starts and so on. But um, there was a sense that they they could identify, they could have a broader sense of themselves uh, in, in a modern age of, communications of trains linking every region Uh, when France is trying to become a power uh, rather than localized and divided and fighting with among themselves um, that they pull themselves together and they coalesce around this uh, nation France. So in my view there is that element of culture going on that you're emphasizing other things uh, about the French people. You're talking about some of the great thinkers, the great uh, historical moments that they went through, Uh, kings, um, experiences that apply um, to to many peoples across France. So um, for that reason, I tend to lean towards a a cultural nationalist uh, viewpoint um, even though uh, I I actually agree to some degree with another uh, theorist, his name is Azar Gad, he's from Israel, and he uh, provides a sociobiological interpretation and criticizes Anthony Smith. And I think Azar Gad is right, that you should not ignore um, the fact that people have a certain... Um, Ethnocentric attachment to their ethnicity, that their other racial components, uh, ways of the way they look physically, um, the genetics of the region. Um, so these things should not be ignored. And I don't think a cultural nationalist viewpoint needs to ignore that aspect. Uh, in order to emphasize that overall uh, the term culture uh, can be comprehensive enough that it can include as well the civic identity because there is a civic identity that goes back to the unique liberal history of europeans Um, the french revolution and the uh, changes that occur because of that and just the way liberalism is such an intrinsic aspect of all western nations so um the, the the cultural definition includes the civic and it includes the ethnic so in that sense i tend to gravitate towards that conception
2: yeah well, anthony smith is a i mean i actually made a, a video on my youtube channel about his ethnic origins of nations i think a couple months ago and uh yeah i, I did really enjoy that text because the critique that he gave, because he was a student of Gellner, Ernst Gellner being one of the great uh, modernist so-called uh, you know, sociologists of nationalism, and his basic premise for where the modernists go wrong is that they only talk about what is universal about the nation-state, and right. so, but they don't talk about what is particular about those nations, what actually differentiates them. And you know, otherwise, you know why would there be any difference between France, England, or Germany, other than they just have different territories or something um but clearly, they have different characters, different cultures, you know there's there's something more about their difference, and so that's what ethno symbolism is trying to answer. He says they just all that uh, Gellner is talking about is you know the structure of the nation state and how that was impacted by industrialization and centralized bureaucracy but not the you know the subjective cultural mythic uh you know symbolic uh kind of aspect of what it it means to to share an ethnic feeling and to basically share a national feeling um you know and i think this is important because you know, obviously Smith's argument is that, well, nation states didn't just arbitrarily get superimposed by these, you know, revolutionary um, changes in Western uh, political form, in the Western political form. They're building upon already pre-existing ethnicities and kind of working within them as frameworks um, and, you know he says like b- both ethnicities and nations, they have a lot of shared characteristics. And from this standpoint, they have shared histories, destinies, you know, values, myths, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, he then makes a series of, of arguments, uh, you know, to, to back that up, which, which I think are very good. So you should watch that video um, if you're interested. But the most in- interesting aspect of his analysis though, was the key question of why are men willing to fight and die for their nations? Because, Obviously, this is not a question that's comprehensible within the modernist paradigm. You know, if nations are just the you know, product of the Industrial Revolution's reorganization of society, how do they take on this kind of existential value for patriots? Um, and, you know, he deals with uh, Benedict Anderson, I believe is the name, who wrote uh, Imagine Communities. And he kind of makes the argument that, well, nationalism is a kind of secular religion of sorts that takes over the kind of existential gap that was left by the death of Christianity. But there's massive historical problems with this view, which is why there's an interesting distinction between what sociologists of nationalism have to say, which are usually um, kind of Marxist types versus what historians of nationalism uh, and nations tend to say, particularly in British historians, English historians, because pretty much all English historians of uh, the English nation Date its formation to hundreds uh, of years before the Industrial Revolution, um, and so you know Smith's concept that nations inherit their identity from pre-modern history um, it kind of gets exposed in um, some of the names. Uh, the work of Adrian Hastings, I can't remember the name of his text right now. He's a historian of nationalism. Uh, there's some other guys. Uh, James Campbell is another historian of uh, of nationalism. A lot of experts, particularly in like Anglo-Saxons and the medieval period, you know, they'll even argue that like by the time of the unification of the Kingdom of England in 1927, you already have many of the components of a national identity, because as you said, I mean, the English people are kind of composite of different, uh, you could say, ethnic groups like there was the, you know, the Angles and the Saxons, there was the Britons that were already there, Celts and so forth. and basically, a lot of the arguments centred around the idea that as they converted to Christianity in, you know, the 8th century, ninth century, um, uh, and so on, that, that they, this created a kind of a um, kind of a universalization of the English identity across that area. And then you get also the kind of centralization, political centralization with the unification of the Kingdom of England in uh, the 10th century. Um and so um, this was kind of, maybe you could say the Norman invasion set this back because now they're getting ruled by people who speak French. Um, but by the time you get the Hundred Years' War with the French, a few centuries after that, there's all kinds of evidence that these historians point to of you know the reabsorption essentially of the monarchy and the aristocracy into a kind of English ethno-national identity, if you will. Um, so it, it seems like from my standpoint that the the kind of key demonstration of this though was the reformation, Um, the whole concept of establishing a national church um, and appealing to the national sovereignty of the King against the Pope. Um, And this was embedded in like, you know, wars between the English and the French and the Spanish and all these kind of intrigues as like Catholics and Protestants jostled for control of the monarchy. All of this was understood by many, you know, political leaders at the time, uh, in terms of what sounds like nationalist rhetoric from like a modern standpoint. And there's a lot of, there's, I think, a strong argument that Protestantism really only emerged in Europe and England in particular, not really because of the kind of doctrinal disputes of like Lutheranism or Calvinism versus, um, you know, a kind of uh, orthodox catholicism but more because of this political struggle to assert national sovereignty and l- these kinds of intrigues and, and power struggles um and and so i think this really kind of destroys the modernist perspective uh that you know nationalism is this this modern construct uh, but what's interesting about modernism that uh the kind of modernist sociologists is that they do point out i think quite accurately um that you know once you start having as you mentioned before ricardo like centralized um, education and communication systems and you know the states that are explicitly justified based upon popular sovereignty and you know advances in weaponry that create like you know universal conscription uh, you know citizen uh, you know mass infantry uh, militaries Um, this obviously is a kind of you know and kind of the proletarianization proletinization of the populations of all these different forces they kind of coalesce around making um nationalism more powerful as a a political uh force in the world and so i think the modernists are kind of pointing towards that uh but they are missing these uh subcategories but i guess what would also be interesting to to kind of uh elaborate on to uh you know elaborate on is uh, as you said before there's also the kind of biological uh aspect to this that a lot of as you said smith does kind of gloss over i don't know if that's due to sincere conviction Or due to political correctness, because when I was reading his book, he did seem to kind of not really deal with the subject very directly. Like he wasn't very interested, it seemed, in in making a lot of arguments uh, against like the role of things like kinship and and biology in this. He he kind of gives it like one or two pages and then just quickly hurries on to the next subject. Um, But, uh, you know, this is an important thing, as you said, like you can't simply reduce. you know, nationalism to just genetic similarity, uh, but at the same time, you also can't deny its role. So, I mean, that maybe might be an interesting thing to talk about how to kind of fit these things together. But uh, I don't know if, if you want to kind of pick up on that, um, how, how you kind of see, you can, how, do you, how do you fit those two things together in the correct way?
1: Well, another thing to um, understand is that nationalism... There's a way, there's a sense in which you find people in other areas of the non-Western world identifying with their ethnicity, and if their ethnicity has clear territorial boundaries and uh, they hold it together, uh, they start thinking of themselves as a group that has sovereignty over that territory, and so there is an element of nationalism there, but at the same time, um, nationalism in many ways is a Western creation, and that's a point to consider, and one of the reasons why the modernist argument uh, was so influential is that it speaks to that reality, the reality that nation-states, were constructed um, in the modern era, in the Western world and nowhere else. And there is a reason for this. And I think is that uh, Europeans, more so than any other people, um, they demolish all their kinship networks Um, This is something that I have written about in reference to a book uh, that came out by Joseph Henrich, The Weirdest People. And um, one of the things that I argue, and I argue this against Henrich, because Henrich is of the view that uh, Western peoples are very individualistic. And with this individualism, There's a sense in which he never knows how to explain how it is that if they're so individualistic and they have no attachments to any collective identity because they demolished their kinship identities and also became more secular and so they did not identify with this Christian worldview, uh, how did they come to create nation states? And I think that that... that precisely because they demolished those kinship traditions and norms and they became more individualistic, uh, were they able to think in broader terms uh, beyond their king groups, uh, to think of themselves as belonging to a larger entity, the nation state or or, or a nation. And um, that also has to be taken in into account. that. Um, from very early on in the history of the West, you can go back to ancient Greece and ask yourself, why did the ancient Greeks decide to create city-states and then in those city-states created a civic identity? Uh, so the civic identity has roots that go deep back into Greek and Roman history. and um, if you go to Solon, uh, Solon's uh, reforms, he very consciously um, uh, called upon the Greeks uh, to um, let go of their clannish attachments uh, of class divisions and to identify with the city-state and see themselves as members of that city-state rather than as members of aristocratic clans. Because um, in early Greek history, uh, what you have are these aristocratic clans that are continuously bickering and feuding with each other. And um, they realized, the Greeks, that, you know, the various city-states, uh, as they started coalescing around them, that uh, this would creating a city-state would be a, a, a better way uh, to harmonize the various Interests of the different classes and the various clannish groups into one powerful group um, by bringing them into the city as citizens who could participate in politics. And in a way, um, they originated politics because before that, politics um, is monopolized by um, particular clannish groups or tribal leaders and uh, you don't have, in the urban areas, you don't have uh, people seeing themselves as uh, members of um, a larger unit, uh, a city-state. So I think one has to go back to ancient times to understand um, this different way of grouping uh, oneself. Um, So the city-state and then the Roman Republic uh, as well uh, uh, are anticipations of this civic identity that you then see emerging in full bloom in modern times. Uh, So that's another angle that I would emphasize um, that um, nation-states are very unique uh, to European peoples and that in a kind of Uh, what may seem to be a paradoxical way, are a reflection of the individualism of Europeans. Uh, Because if you have a society that is super divided along kinship networks, it's very hard to create a national identity. This is one of the problems that we obviously see in Africa, uh, when the Europeans superimpose these nation states, the people were not ready. They were still thinking in terms of tribal lines, uh, tribal lines, and um, they uh, had a collective mentality. They could not think beyond that. Uh, so um, that that's something that's unique about Europeans. But it's not um, it's not true across the board. For example, in the case of Russia, Russia was always different because. I, I kind of agree with Alexander Dugin that um, Russia m- may be better defined as a civilization, as full-scale civilization, in the way that um, Samuel Huntington argued, um, rather than a, a nation state. Uh, Russia always remained more collective uh, in their mindset, and um, they um, had uh, a multi of ethnic groups that were very different. So we're not talking about the kind of variations you see in England or France or Germany. Uh, you're really talking across an entire Asian continent. Uh, so for that reason, uh, Alexander Dugin um, it may be correct that Russia uh, is neither an empire, uh, although sometimes he calls it an empire, uh, or a nation state, but it's a civilization. And that's something to think about as well, because um, in, in the world today, um, <clears throat> when you have extremely powerful uh, nations like China, and you can call China also a civilization unto itself, um, which happens to be very homogeneous, uh, but they're so large and powerful that uh, people like Samuel Huntington. Um, for that reason, call it a civilization. He would not call Canada, for example, a civilization, uh, nor Argentina. Rather, he would say Latin American civilization. He would bring them all together. But in the case of China, he calls it a a civilization. Um, So these are things to think about as well in terms of dissident politics. Um, Do we want to opt for um, uh, small nationalisms uh, across europe um is why nationalism does it have any kind of historical grounding anywhere in the world amongst european peoples or is that an abstract term superimposed from the outside uh without growing from the ground up and um as i just said the the reality that we have this Uh, civilizational constellations. The Muslim world is the same. I mean, yes, Europeans also in the Muslim world constructed these nation states, a lot of them in a very artificial way, but Islam nevertheless brings them together in a a very cohesive way. Um, You could say, well, the European nations make up the West. um, And that is something that can be debated. I think um,
0: with the, the the mention of Alexander Dugan there, we may end up having to field some some spurgy comments in, in the comments section. There, so it's a bit of a meme. Some, somehow we're associated with Duganism, despite like never talking about it. But um is an interesting case because it's uh, um, it's a bit of a unique sort of uh, civilization in itself. This is something I talked a little bit about with Thomas 777 on his podcast recently. Uh, where Russia has or the Slavic peoples have um you know they, they certainly had a feudal order uh at some point, but the uh you know the local lords were not particularly strong vis-a-vis the central state. So Russia has always had like quite a strong central state going back a long time, like Yvonne the period. But,
1: but I, I, I would argue that's to- like a
2: confusion almost of like the Chinese a model with like the western model it's like uh, like a 50 yeah. 50 uh like in, in the pre-soviet yeah. era of course
0: yeah they're very balanced people in this way um yeah uh but i, I wanted to kind of rewind and, and sort of pick up on something that uh, dr Duchesne mentioned here about um the greek city-state um I, th- I think it's interesting to look at that as a kind of paradigm of nationalism because of course i'm of the view that nationalism is not something modern that has ancient roots um, I, I would caution us a bit about looking at the Greek city-state as a kind of civic nationalism because in it, it's sort of like, in its Indo-European roots, what it is is it's a, effectively a, a kind of cult, a state cult that's centered around family cults, and these family cults get built up into the state cult. They're all centered around the Pritanium, which is basically the hearth of the city, uh, and this is part of what created s- the structural conflict that Resulted in Solon in the first place. Solon basically being a reformer that came in, broke up the clans, or at least broke up the administrative uh, administrations of the city into uh, divisions of deems rather than clans. And this is where we get deem as in democracy. That's kind of the root of that. Um, and where basically what he does is he kind of cuts th- against the joints and basically like you know cuts all these uh, divisions up across. Organic lines that basically breaks them up and everything and and then people only when he does that um, And the city-state kind of starts to lose some of its vigor uh, Do we get a kind of civic nationalism where you associate with your deem more than with your clan? Um, But you know the fact is that uh, you know in its sort of health and strength the city-state of Greece was really um, an association Uh, where you did associate more with your family than you did with your clan, more with your clan than your tribe, and more with your tribe than your city, but you still associated with the city. That was still a kind of um, nationalist identity that was built up out of these localized identities. Um, And I think that the idea that nationalisms, when broader identities overtake local identities, is a little bit problematic. Uh, But um, I I did did want to uh, also mention, I I think – first of all the nation and by extension nationalism is above, above all it's something ambiguous like there may not be one inclusion criterion that all nations share like for example um at the beginning of this discussion canada was mentioned canada is an inter- interesting case because it's a multilingual nation this is unusual in um it's not unheard of but it's unusual in uh, the history of nations and france uh you know France was mentioned as well. France is really interesting because they kind of see themselves as a, the the most truly European nation because they have a Roman language, they have Celtic roots and uh, the birth of, of the French people really was sort of uh, as opposed to the Celtic peoples was came in when the Germanic elite came in. So they've got roots from all over Europe, right? So they kind of see themselves as a kind of center of European society. Um, but so, I mean, it's, it's ambiguous, right? So we, we've got this kind of problem of looking at it as, it as a kind of modern thing because, of course, you know, the nation itself is not modern. What's, mo- what's modern about it? Um, well, I mean, modernists the modernist school makes nationalism something new. I think that's wrong. I guess I'll get into why or whatever. But I, I would also sort of um, push back a little, a little bit against the ethno-symbolist view as well. Um, although I will say this. when I uh, Before I started reading into it, I thought that I was just going like, to just hard agree with primordialism. Not, not the case, actually. I think the ethno-symbolists have a lot going for them, but one of the issues with it is it kind of it admits a kind of civic nationalism, um, and that might not be a problem for you depending how you feel about civic nationalism, but it certainly does invite that. But I think a more serious problem is that it, it, it sort of like leans on the idea of a national myth, and a myth is a problematic idea, uh, at, at least for the self-identification of a people, right? Uh, because it's kind of arbitrary. Uh, it's it's a myth is a kind of lie in a way, right? Um, a feeling is not arbitrary. Uh, it can be instinctual. It can come from you know your historical reality, but a sort of a myth of like you know, the founding of, of your nation is 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 it is arbitrary. Like if if your nation has an origin, right? Like if you can point back to when your nation was born out of a kind of like welding together of like different ethnicities, well, the question then, and it's it's valid, is why can't it have another origin? Like why can't we hit the reset button today and import a bunch of Somalis or whatever? Uh, I think only the idea that our orange or origins are obscure can answer this question. Non arbitrarily. So I think that there is something to say that nationalism is a kind of like ethnocentrism writ large. Um, otherwise, you kind of have to carve out this space for civic nationalism and it kind of validates it. Uh, again, it might not be a problem, depending on your view. But um, in any case, you know, I, I think that we can all really agree that the, the nation is kind of like the widest possible association. Anything wider than that kind of like lacks a, a group coherence. Like it might be a species or a genus or whatever, but it doesn't like self-identify as a coherent group. And what nationalism is, before it is a political ideology, is kind of like the in-group loyalty or sentiment that makes the nation a coherent unit – I mean, the the loyalty may kind of wax and wane, and as it as it does, nationalism does too. But there's never a point where nationalism kind of disappears, except to to the degree that loyalty kind of devolves from the widest associations. So, the idea that modern modernity created the conditions for national nationalism, I don't really buy that because it makes something that makes nationalism into something unique and new. But I think a better view of this is that the conditions for nationalism are created by the end of a historical cycle. Um, So it's like, basically, like, I mean, and this is the, like, nationalism kind of surged in the Romantic era, of course, but like, it's it's not new. Like, the conditions that gave rise to it are new, but like nationalism itself, these things kind of like go in cycles, right? Like the same thing happened in antiquity. So you could take like the end of the Roman Empire, um, where – or if not the end then the, moving towards the end where any nation conquered by Rome wanted citizenship like without citizenship as a roman pro- province you as a man in this province would have no legal standing like you basically you know you you, you didn't own any property and and so on and so forth like this was unthinkable uh, to admit someone from the province into roman citizenship was unthinkable because the citizen could be a senator and and then he could The citizen could sit in the holiest temple of the city, and the idea that a foreigner could do that was just unthinkable. But, I mean, the TLDR, to to sort of like gloss over a bunch of history, is that this was unacceptable to the the conquered peoples, and Rome was kind of forced to make concessions as the empire weakened. So this like lack of standing, uh, like the inability to own property, to have paternal authority over your family, to inherit property – Kind of like made these people aware and the provinces of their, uh, it made them aware of their nationhood once it had been taken away, and as the hegemon weakened, as Rome kind of weakened, this early like ancient nationalism strengthened. Eventually, it prevailed, uh, and uh, the crisis right around the third century, and then we had a big crisis. And you could also see this as well in like late spring and autumn China, like in the eighth century, the Zhou capital was destroyed and and then forced to move eastward. There was a kind of like uneasy hegemony for about a century but eventually this broke down into like hyper feudal localism until four nations emerged uh in in the spring and autumn period they struggled for power and these nations kind of conceived of themselves as discrete political units or discrete national units but only in the wake of the decline of central authority and this seems to be like how it always goes like as imperialism declines nationalism re-emerges and this of course would happen with the decline of the british empire world war one and so on like there was an irish nation before the 18th century but the irish weren't too you know fussed about being ruled by english lords it was only with the decline of english power that nationalism re-emerged so i think that politicization like rather than being like a cause or a condition of nationalism is actually a consequence What allows nationalism to reemerge in the first place? So like politics and nationalism seem to they arise together But one isn't the cause of the other and we can say the same thing about the decline of the Catholic Church So um, like Joel you mentioned that the Reformation. I think that's an important point I think the Reformation absolutely made nationalism inevitable. I don't think it's a consequence of nationalism I think it's a cause it took a few centuries for this to happen so I mean, like, you know, hating the Reformation and loving nationalism. There's there's a bit of a tension there, but anyway, to sort of like, you know, wrap it up here, it's it's the decline of empire that creates the favorable conditions for nationalism, not modernity specifically. You see this in the decline of the Zhou dynasty, decline of the Roman Empire, decline of the Holy Roman Empire, decline of the British Empire. All these things kind of presage the rise of nationalism in their time. So. The idea that there's no I such think, thing as ancient nationalism doesn't seem serious to me. Well, I
2: think Ricardo made an interesting point when he was talking about uh, civilizational identity because, you know, if you go back to the ancient Greek city states, they were always, you know, Athens and Sparta kind of going to war with each other and stuff. And then the Persians come along and all of a sudden they start seeing themselves as Greeks and fighting alongside each other to repel uh, the Persians. Um, and, you know, you know, you talk about like Irish and, and English nationalism, obviously, in, in a sense, they're kind of a powder keg where English nationalism emerges, but then it comes with the Reformation. So then the Irish, they, they have their Catholic identity that helps them differentiate themselves from the English. Um, but then in Australia, where I'm from, I mean, people that are English uh, and have English or Irish ancestry of all like interbred, and now they just see them they just see themselves as Australians and these distinctions no longer really matter. And if you look at it from a genetic standpoint, there really isn't a great deal of difference between the Irish and the English. Um, So, you know, the kind of uh, particular historical kind of uh, direction that that took um, kind of gives it its character, uh, but there is a kind of a more fundamental similarity. Like if you, like in my life when I've talked to or met and have friends that are Irish and friends that are English, um, they are actually quite similar people in may, uh, peoples in many ways, uh, which is why you know in, in America or in Australia in Canada and so forth, um, you know a, an Anglo and a Celt uh, diaspora can fuse together you know with some bumps in the road, I guess particularly in the United States. I mean even in Australia, like when the Irish first came here, they were, they were kind of fighting you know uh, wars of resistance and so forth. Um, but after enough time, uh, those things kind of become forgotten um but the thing is if it was english and somalis uh, i don't think that's really as possible right so you know when ricardo was talking about civilizational identity i think this is an important thing to consider uh particularly in the context of you know white nationalism um because you know i don't feel existentially threatened by immigrants into australia from france or germany or canada or wherever um but if a bunch of chinese and indians uh, show up in my country then all of a sudden i don't feel as the, the, the same way i feel that that's a direct threat upon the character of my nation and so you know as he was talking about how you know there's a there's something particular about um in you know, the western state form uh, western nationalism western culture that differentiates us from the other civilizations and the other races and so forth in the world i think that's a very important point because what we have seen, with particularly in the sphere, is that um, Europeans are able to build new nations out of themselves and give birth to new nations, and that actually can work. Um, but then those projects have essentially all been derailed by basically cutting that cord with um, European genetic stock, uh, Europeans, uh, Europeans in general, essentially, and becoming like uh, post-European nations, particularly in the United States. Um, I mean, uh, I, I guess you could also group Argentina in as a as a, as a nation like this as well, with a bit of a different history. but essentially, I mean, Argentina in many ways is a, is a European country, you could argue. but th- the point is is that this uh, I think why a theory of ethnogenesis is kind of what we need. We want to if we want to advance the ball in uh, academically in this area in our milieu, we need to have a rigorous theory of what ethnogenesis is, and it has to be multifactor. So I think that's a good thing that you can take from Anthony Smith's analysis, even though he leaves out, I think, important uh, components such as um, the kind of genetic uh, component. He says, you know, if you go through different examples, you can show how ethnicity isn't reducible to any one thing. So, for example, the Croatians and the Serbs, they basically speak the same language, but they have different religions. Um, And so Yugoslavia breaks up and they see themselves as two distinct nations and go to war with one another Um, and they both want to have their autonomy and independence from one another. Um, whereas like, if you look at the example of like the Scots, um, or the Irish, the Irish and the Scots, they'll have, you know, half the country will basically, uh, you know, speak local languages. The other half will only speak English. Um, but they'll still see themselves as one nation, uh, in, in contradistinction with the, with the English essentially, or the British in general, um in the in the case of the irish and so that's these are all very important uh points because it shows how it isn't just any one thing but that ethnicity is a kind of it's kind of an a, an emergent uh property from a kind of uh, many different factors um and so i think again like you, if you i think you've got to add genetics in here it's like well you can have, have you can have genetic similarity between two nations and they might turn on each other but at the same time uh that doesn't mean that you couldn't have, like, say, if you, there's a Croatian girl and she marries a Serbian guy and then they move to Serbia and have the kid, the kid is going to be as Serbian as anyone else, probably. Um, and the same thing with an Irish girl and an English guy. They, you know, whichever country they grow up in, they're just going to end up being that Um so, so I think it's important that we can kind of like draw these distinctions that there are kind of like soft walls between certain ethnicities and then there are hard walls between others and that's I think you can kind of group them into like races, civilizations, and it, you don't have to kind of reduce one to the other, but I think you can see them as necessary components, much in the same way that you can have an, a, an ethnic group that has more than one religious faith, but generally speaking, that's also kind of been a, a point of bifurcation, so um, there are kind of non-negotiables, uh, I guess, in this, but, that, uh, but there are also kind of like fuzzy borders. And just because something has fuzzy boundaries, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, you know, like you could kind of view ethnicities, therefore, as um, clusters. So, for example, um, you know, if you have, you know, uh, people that are, uh you have a lot of immigrants into Britain through the eighteenth century seventeenth century from continental Europe I think even earlier um things like caused by you know basically the emergence of British economic might mixed with you know basically wars on the continent um, escape to the island where that, that there isn't wars because you have a relatively stable political system and an emerging economy there's opportunities those people kind of get um infused into the british national identity over enough generations um, so that's i think one issue that you have with being over reductive is you is you kind of cut off any kind of uh, capacity for absorption and transfer of populations in and out of different ethnic groups and national groups um, and if you do that then then you uh, you kind of force yourself into a position that isn't very isn't isn't that defensible then you're going to be in in trouble when you're trying to defend you know, immigration restriction, or like you know, uh, the kind of uh, recultivation and, and restrengthening of national identities in, in Western nations, where we have this anti-national ideology that's taken over. Um, you want to be in a de- you want to be in a defensible uh, kind of I think academic position where you can actually um accept you can see these anomalies and these complexities, but still retain uh you know an integrity to your nationalism at the same time. But uh, I don't know. I know what you guys think about that. Maybe uh, Ricardo has some thoughts.
1: Well, I I would emphasize again that in the case of the Greek city-states, the civic, they originated the idea of a civic identity. Um, The idea that you are a citizen, you're not a member of this clan or this tribe, you're a member of Athens or Sparta or Thebes, and that's your identity. That doesn't mean, it doesn't preclude the fact that in those days you still had extended families and that they do strongly identify with those families. It just means that the the politics of the city state are not going to be controlled by these clannish families, but by laws that apply to everyone regardless of their tribal background. It applies to them equally as long as you're a citizen and at the same time because they already united this civic identity which is based on a larger role for reason to decide um, the laws and how they're going to be written and how democracy is going to be constituted. uh, This doesn't preclude the fact, as I just said, of this the remaining extended families, but also it doesn't preclude the Greekness as you pointed out that they still felt when they fought against the Persians. In other words, even though they saw themselves as members of particular city-states, when they fought the other, the Persians, they realized we are Greeks and, and they understood this and you can see it in their writings. And, and and one of the things that made them different, they would say, is that we are citizens, we have city-states, we reason about things, we have philosophy, uh, and we have a, a degree of individualism that is lacking elsewhere. Uh, it's not modern individualism, but they did use the term freedom, liberties, uh, as they understood those terms at that time. Um, so... Uh, I think this is the complexity always about the West is that you have to uh, see how these things fit together. The civic uh, and and the ethnic and the remaining elements of the tribal background that are still there. Um, You don't find the civic in other uh, cultures and civilizations. So this is something that is unique to the West and should not be dismissed. Of course, now when people just just want to emphasize the civic, and now we are at a point at which that too is going out. Uh, We talk about post-nations, we talk about uh, the human rights of anyone around the world to belong into your nation and to immediately become citizens and that a civic identity that emphasizes its Western roots is now seen as ethnocentric and racist. Um, So the West is trying to go past beyond a civic identity and talk about a global identity. But the the civic identity is is still there and is the source for civic nationalism, uh, which is better than non-nationalism at all. Uh, So to me, it's always a question of how do you work your way through these uh, two poles, uh, including, and sometimes, as I said at the beginning, a compromise for me is to talk about cultural nationalism, which includes the civic and the ethnic, and it, it sort of accept, uh, accepts both sides of it, uh, because the civic side is a cultural side, but the cultural side goes deeper into the ancestry, the heroes, and and yes, the myths. I mean, myths, don't have to be accurate. That's not the role of a mess. A mess is is, we all have that tendency. We idealize the past. We want heroes and great men. And we look at, you know, you talk about Charlemagne, the father of France. Um, He's he's raised up as this grand, heroic, not to be criticized figure. Uh, For all his flaws, you you just want to see what is the best in him and what is the best in your past and in your traditions and your customs And you know those things didn't quite exist the way that you would wish they did or the way you imagined them. But um, you still believe in those things and the images and symbols and you attach yourself to them. so that's one thing that I, I, I would add. And also in in, uh, in the case of Canada, that's right. One of the reasons, again, why I would emphasize the, the cultural dimension is that in Canada, you have the Quebecois who are very strong. Uh, have a, Now it's a lot weaker, but still outside Montreal. Um, they still have a very strong sense of ethnic identity as a Quebecois people that are different from other people. And and, and Quebec was a very homogeneous uh, province right up until very recent times. Uh, people don't know that, but Quebec is really heavily Quebecois people that were born in Quebec uh, most of the people that you see in Quebec, say in the 19th century up until the 1950s, were people that were born in that province. They, they were not immigrants. Immigration only started after the 1960s. Um, so they, they, it's not possible when you look at Canada and say, I'm, a, I'm for, for ethnic nationalism in that blank way, uh, when the Quebecois will say, Well, no, we. If you are for, for ethnic nationalism, then we want to be uh, separate from you. Um, and then you have other peoples here, you have the, the natives and their variations among them, and they have been given self-autonomy in various in Nunavut, they, are, they have self-autonomy and in other regions. So um, in that context, it's very difficult to talk about uh, ethnic nationalism Uh, Whereas uh, cultural kind of allows for you to include all of that inside uh, and also perhaps allows for the reality at least that many other peoples came, Italians, Greeks, Russians, Scandinavians, uh, came to Canada and that they they all come from different ethnicities. Uh, So with a cultural nationalism, what you would emphasize is the the, the traditions of, of all these peoples in Canada, uh, their folk uh, costumes, uh, their history, their heroes, uh, food, music, uh, language. And yes, it also includes ethnicity in this more diverse way. Um, now this, ha- this has been really complicated and this is the problem that uh, in a way um they they found a way to defeat uh, uh, nationalism, even cultural nationalism, they found a way of defeating it as it existed because now the the Western world, most of the nations of the Western world are full of um, peoples from all over the world. Um, they are gonna be, Uh, There are majorities in Canada already in Toronto, Um, I think in Vancouver already. They will soon be coming Calgary, and Montreal is at a high 30%, if I remember. Um, So, this is is complicating everything at this point. And some people, as you know, have jumped into the idea of white nationalism as being the way to coalesce uh, uh, Europeans. Uh, but but I have certain doubts about that. I, I don't think that has roots. And um, nationalism is about roots. It's about, uh, it has to come from the ground up, something that is felt because you you remember things from your childhood, songs and um, people, and mannerisms, um, and that... It's very hard to think about that when you just use an abstract term like white nationalism. Exactly, in what ways an Irish kind of Irish creator white nationalism and the French and and what is it about it that makes them feel part of something? So, it's I mean, the whole thing is is really a mess in, in many ways in the Western world at this point. Um, <clears throat> so. Well, I thought think-
0: you brought up Quebec, uh, Quebecois nationalism. I, I'll just make a quick point here, Joel, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you jump in. Um, I, growing up in Canada myself, um, you know, I remember the Meech Lake Accords. I was pretty, I was quite young when they happened, but I was at least old enough to kind of understand the basic idea of what was going on. Basically, this was a referendum on Quebec separation. And at the time, and for a long time after, I sort of felt like, what are they doing you know we're all canadians this is you know it's divisive you know to to use a term that's uh, in vogue now um i didn't get it right but then later on as an adult you know doing a bit of traveling in quebec i mean montreal's a bit of a different thing You know, if you go to Toronto or if you go to Montreal, you go to Vancouver, I mean, uh, there are some local flavor there, but for the most part, you could be in New York or Chicago or London or Berlin or whatever. If you go to the sort of hinterlands, or, you know, Quebec City is not a small city, but if you go outside of Montreal, anywhere in Quebec, basically, you're in a different country, you're in a different nation. Um, And later on, I came to understand Quebecois nationalism. And uh, very much supportive of that now it's kind of died off significantly since then but for like centuries it it, it was a going concern very very strong these people are different Uh, the Québécois are different from the rest of Canada and they're also different from the French if you go like you know we learn French in Canada as a a matter of um, you know in public school but if you take your Quebecois French that you learn and you go to France, they're going to laugh at you for it. It's going to sound different. You're, you're not Quebecois are not French people. They are their own people. I mean, they speak French. It's certainly mutually intelligible, but culturally, they are their own thing. They have undergone a kind of ethnogenesis, and um, you know, this is this is part of the problem with primordialism, right? It kind of pre- pre- precludes the possibility of that that the Quebecois can be their own thing. It even precludes the possibility of Australia or America as a nation. And America, ethnogenesis is, is an interesting case because it's one of the. It's an ethnogenesis of not just European peoples, but of course you've got you know Africans that been there, um, you know from wh- well before Amer- America was a state, and it's it, it's it, it's it's a bit of a melting pot. It's it's kind of a it's it's a a good experiment in how it actually like act, actually plays out when you take these radically different peoples and kind of weld them together into a nation. And of course, you know, in a sense, this is an argument for the primordialist view that America doesn't seem to be functioning very well because of this. So you know, maybe there's something to the idea that uh, far back enough. You know the Italians and the Greeks and the uh, Poles and the Dutch and the English and all the different ethnicities were similar enough that they could kind of be welded together, whereas some some weren't. So anyway, Joel, go ahead. You wanted to say something.
2: Yeah, well, I was just going to say. I mean, I was I was in Croatia recently. Um, I was there for I don't know, about a month and a half, and while I was in Croatia croatia is an ethno state i mean for all intents and purposes like 90 percent of its population are croatian and then of the other 10 percent like the majority of them are like from surrounding they're white people from surrounding countries basically they're like italians or uh, serbs or or whatever so it's it's a it's an ethno state functionally uh, fundamentally and um it's very interesting being there um The kind of feeling of you know i'm surrounded by a bunch of white people but i don't feel like part of the nation so to speak whereas when i'm in the united states or when i'm in um england i definitely feel kind of comfortable in my own skin when i talk to people i feel very welcome i feel like almost like not quite the same as being in australia but pretty close um and so that was an interesting experience because it did demonstrate that well There is uh, a lot, particularly in a place like Croatia, which is rare in Europe as a European nation, that's kind of maintained its integrity, uh, at least up to this point, in a way that most other European nations haven't, Um, the kind of uh, intensity of ethnic feeling, um, you know, creates a different vibe, if you will. Um, But I think when it comes to the kind of concrete problems that we're facing in, um, you know, Western Europe, uh, and the Anglosphere, in terms of the effects of mass immigration and um the kind of ideological uh, uh the ideological ills if you will of like the post 1960s um you know uh, collection that we have where you can kind of combine opening up the borders with a kind of shift in the our kind of like understanding of ourselves where increasingly um instead of being kind of filled with all of these national myths that are supposed to kind of give us a sense of uniqueness and distinctness and like exceptionalism. Increasingly, we're being taught, particularly in recent decades, that we should be ashamed of the history of our nations and that we've done all these terrible things. You know, the Germans, and the, you know it's pretty obvious what they teach them, or the when it comes to the English, you know, you get talk, taught about all the terrible things the British Empire did, or the Americans get taught about slavery, or, you know, the Australians get taught about how badly we treated the um, Aboriginals or whatever. Um, and, and this, you know, obviously, uh, completely undermines, um, you know, how we're supposed to feel. Nevertheless, obviously national sentiment persists in these places, but, uh, it's become increasingly marginalized. And so, you know, as Ricardo pointed out, it is a mess really at this point, um, to try and figure out how to, essentially you need to have, um, the state to kind of figure out how to like actively construct. A kind of ethnogenesis, a kind of revivification, or a redevelopment of the nation from a kind of historically unprecedented uh, situation, um, and, and and so this this I think means that we have to whilst we have to kind of look at history and look at you know what already exists as a kind of um, a kind of foundation for that project we have to kind of look to ethnogenesis as, as a kind of active process that we can't just assume we can't un- unlike the Croatians or um, maybe the Hungarians or, you know, the Japanese, we can't just kind of assume our nation to kind of already exist because they're, they're kind of fundamentally un- un- you know, in crisis. And so we have to kind of rebuild, I think, a kind of uh, rational ideological concept of, the importance of ethnicity and and what ethnogenesis is and how the state can actually bring that forth. And I think we have to therefore appeal not to just who we already are in the kind of subjective sense of things, but we have to appeal to kind of objective things about states. Like I think we have to kind of look at how particularly in the American situation, you can see how ethnic conflict basically drives American politics that it's very difficult in the United States for kind of the political process to actualize any, you know, public policies, um, that actually deal with, you know, so, so to speak, you know, the issues that you would expect, you know, a state to, to deal with, like, you know, the economy, foreign policy, etc. without back processing, back processing, uh, the state and its, and its role in society through, um, you know, this kind of, uh, kind of conflict uh, discourse about all these different oppressed groups and, and whether this is racist or not racist i mean the experiences particularly of the last maybe like five six years in politics it seems as though whatever is considered to be the official position of racists that gets assigned to the so-called right wing and then whatever the anti-racist position is gets assigned to the left wing and then the mainstream right wing is just trying to describe how actually it's not really racist and how their position in actuality is the non-racist position versus like the left or something everything is kind of the whole spectrum kind of oscillates in the popular consciousness around this and so i think it's a good point to say well obviously from a rational standpoint if we wanted to have a state uh, that actually dealt with concrete problems this is a major fucking problem uh, in in actually achieving that so that can at least provide I think a kind of groundwork for okay we need to kind of solve this problem we need to kind of figure out how to move towards ethnogenesis and I think the other angle of this as well is the kind of Schmittian concept of democracy which I talk about a lot where Schmitt says you kind of you, there's a kind of contradiction fundamentally between a um, liberal conception of the state as essentially this um uh adversarial process where you have these different individuals jostling for their personal self-interest and then we process them through this kind of parliamentary um you know mechanism and then we can then kind of produce political outcomes out of that and so it's like um constrained you know rules-based like warfare essentially to prevent you know all-out you know civil decay Um, versus the schmidian concept of democracy which is fundamentally the identification of a people Uh, with their laws and the state and state with its people and so forth. in this kind of uh, retro uh, kind of um, mutually reinforcing fashion. Um, And so I think this is maybe an interesting place to take the discussion. Ricardo is like how you kind of see, you know, in terms of like getting out of just specifically discussing what a nation is and what ethnicity is to state policy and to ideology. um, How do you, basically see this translation working, because on the one hand, uh, particularly in the United States, you have this sense of identification with, oh, well, America is a nation of immigrants, Um, the founding fathers, they conceived of, uh, you know, a state based upon, like, universal human rights or something, and so, you know, we're kind of honoring the American project by having this kind of universalist uh, project. Um, whereas obviously that actually is historically inaccurate See, the founding fathers were racist uh, by any kind of modern standards of the term and there was they had a very kind of you know uh, ethnic vision of what America was supposed to be like you know they, they weren't even white nationalists they kind of considered the majority of Europeans to be you know not of the correct ethnic stock for what they wanted. they wanted to create a spe- uh, specifically kind of Germanic Nordic uh celtic kind of nation and even like the irish were in a precarious position there was debate you know in the 19th century about whether the irish should even be included in america and um so we're obviously a long way from from that but i think the point is you know how do you how do you see these pieces getting fit together because clearly the current situation is just a disaster um so on what basis do you think the state can reform a kind of legitimacy for a project of ethnogenesis and like restoring a sense of homogeneity and uh, democratic identity in the Schmidian sense?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, you mentioned Croatia and we can add Hungary, Poland and a few other uh, countries in Europe that you can see that the people have a strong sense of ethnic identity and the more homogeneous they are the stronger that identity is and when you go there even though you're white uh, you don't feel that you could be part of croatia whereas uh, in australia you feel you could be but then you added that uh, you don't identify with the non-european immigrants you you feel part of an australia that really consists of white so That brings the issue of white nationalism and why why it has attracted uh, people on the dissident right is for that reason in reference to the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And um, now some people say even Britain and a few other nations because they have so many non-whites there that a, a, a British person now says, okay, what makes me different from them or say the Poles that are in Britain, what makes me different from the others is that I'm white. So people are kind of uh, uh, gravitating towards this idea of white nationalism. Uh, my problem with it, and it, it, it's something that I don't have a full answer because it gets into a, a difficult discussions about um, the way in which white nationalism, um, it doesn't have an existential reality anywhere. And even in in the case of the United States, I think uh, when you follow some of the discussions among white nationalists, they they are coming to the realization that at most they're going to get a few states in the Northwest. So here they're talking about states, not even nations, uh, people that have come from all backgrounds into those states, even people from California that are white, and they're hoping that there they can create some kind of white national identity. Um, but I, I, I find that difficult. Um, um, there are many reasons why it is difficult. You can mention things like how can a state, I mean, in the first place, would they be allowed to be, to separate? Uh, will they? How would they distribute military resources and that kind of thing? Uh, but also whether, when you talk about nationalism, uh, um, you talk about someone like Anthony Smith. How can you use the ideas of Anthony Smith to understand white nationalism in uh, Idaho or um, some other one of those Northwestern states? Uh, it, it sort of becomes difficult. Um, so that, that brings me also to, to the idea of civilizations and. I know, you know, I mentioned Alexander Dugin, and I have always been, I have been critical of him, but less so lately. Um, I, I, I think that, um, that he may be a person to go to, because right now, uh, the United States, with its global power, um, and the way it spreads its liberal globalist values across the world, uh what force can oppose them i don't see any force within the united states other than a populist movement and it would be a populist movement that needs to go sort of beyond trump 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 and the followers of trump it has to be more anchored in a cultural nationalist perspective that would include people from other ethnicities because that's the reality there, uh, but it would emphasize the European-American heritage of the United States, and um, and then, uh, because Dugan recognizes that, uh, you know, he's really critical of the West, but I think he, he has revised his views and has realized when he saw Trump is in rising, he was taken aback and he realized, well, here is a counter movement against everything that I dislike about the West, even though he sees Trump as just an older version of liberalism, countering this new version, uh, this uh, woke, um, anti sexual identity that he wants to destroy all identities now, including the sexual identities and even the human identity to create a post human being. Um, so but he has also this vision of different civilizations the Indian civilization and the Latin Americans and but Russia also he comes from Russia he feels it has to Russia has been destined to be at the forefront of challenging this American globalism so I am I'm going with that I mean I you know there is a war going in Ukraine and I'm with the Russians I think it's terrible what's happening there but um it was the americans who created that situation and um so at this point i'm kind of anchoring on the idea of russia now fully moving in a in a more nationalistic but in a civilizational way it's not the kind of nationalism you see that is centered on a strong one-dimensional ethnicity because Russia is multi-ethnic, even though the Russians are 80% and then if you add the other uh, European Caucasian minorities, whites are close to 90% there. I don't know the exact number, but it's quite high in the 80s. Um, so that might be something to think about uh, right now because the, the major world historical event in in many decades now, in my view, the Ukrainian war. And so um, I think, you know, that Dugin is a person that uh, that, that at this point, he has a, a worldview and is someone to be taken really seriously. And that I have seen that he has kind of come to the realization that there may be sources in the West, uh, to counter the neocon globalist perspective that he hates so much and that he has always sort of strictly identified with the West. And we can see in Europe, uh, it's not just Russia, we can see in Europe people um, uh, sort of rediscovering uh, their pan-European identity. I know right now with NATO they just joined the American globalist perspective, but in time it could be that they begin to react against it as the Americans are defeated uh, in many places. And then we have a multiplicity of other civilizations that other peoples can identify with as, as their place, as their lands and their culture, and um, overcome this idea of creating these sort of, um, you know, places like Australia and Canada where people don't know what their identity is and where they belong and they're just individuals free flowing um, and really controlled by um, by a state that imposes all these kinds of values that come out of nowhere, um, the gender fluidity and, you know, all the values um, and so on. So I I think it it, it might be something to think about that instead of um, talking about nationalism within specific European nations, each on their own, because if you take Croatia, Hungary, Poland, I mean, fine, they can have their identity, but uh, in the real world of world politics, um, China is going to dominate, and India is going to dominate. Uh, they, they are together; those two nations are half the world's population. Uh, Africa is going to get a massive numbers of people. Uh, so, in, in the world, you have to have a civilization, and Rush is interesting, and that's what creates a lot of um, it creates a lot of confusion because it, they want they want to be Eurasian. So people say, "Oh well, they're not. They don't want to be really European. They're kind of Asian, and uh, they're an Asiatic power, and Dugin is for the third world, that kind of thing." But fundamentally, it is an Eastern Slavic nation. and He says that often, uh, <clears throat> so. is Eastern Slavic, but it includes other ethnicities and the Chechens, for example, were fought and not allowed to have their nation state. Um, But nevertheless, um, they are given autonomy over everything else. As long as they're not a nation that has sovereign political power and they can then side with other nations against Russia, as long as they don't do that, more or less they can be autonomous. and be included in that sense, Uh, when this war happens, they're included. Uh, So, that might be something to think about because right now, uh, I don't see anybody uh, in the Western world articulating a cohesive worldview um, I, I look at American renaissance and, you know, people talk about the mayhem and the chaos that blacks bring, but that's not a way to to create a worldview for people and a civilization. It's just you're just pointing out to to the crimes they commit and then People talk about the Jews and the power they have and that kind of thing. But that too, that's not a way to galvanize a people and and to find an identity. And people have this illusion that if only people find out about the Jews, oh, that's going to galvanize everyone. And I don't think so. Um, So then you have white nationalism, which I find flaws for the reason I mentioned before. So right now, I don't know, you may have some Group or someone, but I don't see I don't see, um, I don't see a, a worldview coming from the dissident right that has the kind of it doesn't mean that that you accept everything Dugin says because his fourth theory allows for adaptations to different situations uh, and as long as we recognizes the the possibility of European peoples. Um, having their own identity. Uh, of course, he's, he's not into race because that doesn't make sense in Russia, but he is for the idea of ethnos. So, and, and the idea of ethnos. when I think about it, and I haven't read his book, but I intend to, uh, I mean, I intend to read him now seriously. I have just read the four Syrian and some articles. I, he just came out with a manifesto, which is brilliant, uh, that, you know, I might send... Um, so, to me, right now, this is this is the way to go, and I don't see anything else. I know it sounds kind of crazy because in my, you know, I emphasize the West so much and the greatness and what they achieve, and Dugin doesn't talk about that at all, and he doesn't like the ranking of peoples, and I'm fine with that. I, I mean. As long as his theory allows for the reality of every people to affirm their identity and their history, then I find it, it's, 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 it can fit in with that perspective.
2: Yeah, well, there's a lot in what you said. I mean, the issue that I have with, because um, Dugan has become like a popularized name on the dissident right for whatever reason. But it's a fact that he didn't really invent Eurasianism. Right, Eurasianism is a tradition in um, you know that has been with uh, Russian scholars since the early 20th century um, uh, a James Gregor in his analysis of the kind of development of the Soviet project he d- talks about this a lot um, and uh, a lot of people that are associated with the Communist Party of Russia and the Communist Party of Russia is interesting because Communist Party of Russia is not a communist in the sense of, they're not communists in the sense that we see communists. In the West, and this is one interesting thing about the about Russian politics that I think a lot of Westerners miss out on it that is something that I've only really become aware of recently because you know with the Ukrainian war I started taking more interest in the Russians. Um, and like I was talking about how in American politics everything is kind of processed through kind of racial and ethnic politics everything is uh, kind of understood in like the Western world in terms of our, your position upon the atrocities, what people have committed, whether you talk about the Holocaust or slavery or whatever Yeah. in, in the West, you, I mean, sorry, in, in uh, Russia, they fundamentally understand their political uh, spectrum in terms of your perspective on the Soviet union. So in a sense to be a conservative in Russia is to be a communist because um, these are, like from a Russian perspective, the more um, classical institutions of, of of statecraft that exist for a, a Russian identity are actually kind of communist. Obviously, you could reach back behind that to a kind of imperial, you know, white Russian identity or something. Um, but because that's kind of uh, lacking relevance to modernity, it's kind of it's kind of beyond. What a russian conservative would believe so to speak it, it goes all the way back to like maybe like a kind of reactionary russian position or something which does not really super relevant to like a modern industrial uh society um whereas in in the kind of uh other side of the political spectrum in russia uh nationalists and liberals and which is weird because in the west it's kind of like uh, nationalists are kind of seen as like extreme right-wingers and then liberals are kind of like on the left and they're kind of opponents of one another. Whereas in Russia, they kind of coalesce together on the so-called Russian left, the Russian progressives who have a more positive vision towards the West, they wanna kind of integrate with the West. Obviously these are the kinds of people um, that are associated with like Gorbachev's wing of the, the declining uh, Soviet communist uh, party um, and you know people that coalesced around Yeltsin and um, the leadership of Russia in the 90s. Um, whereas the communist party of russia whenever you you know people talk about you know when they do public speeches there's some orthodox priest there and you don't really hear any discussion of like dialectical materialism or any of these ideological marxist concepts but instead you hear a kind of you know almost fascist sounding rhetoric talking about the need for russia to restore itself um and its cultural integrity and like rants about the evils of homosexuality being normalized right. and transgenderism of the west so it's completely opposite to what a western communist is like um, yeah. but but like that movement exists in in russia in a big way so alexander dugan is kind of just a guy that was inspired by this already kind of thriving um, kind of movement in Russian politics. So I wouldn't I don't really see him as having any kind of like specific value in comparison to the other authors that he kind of builds off of. And uh, I think there's some problems with his approach due to um, to Heideggerianism and uh, and so forth, even maybe you could find interesting stuff in his works. Um but uh, this idea that like duganism is this like new ideology of like you know eurasianism as this, this as a, as russia as a distinct sphere from the west this is this is this isn't the case it's a it's a far larger movement with far many uh, far more characters and in russia i think dugan is considered as somewhat of a pariah somewhat of a like he doesn't have a very good reputation in in, in even uh, even within that movement in russia um when it comes to the, what you're saying though about the west i think you we're hitting on some very interesting points because you were talking about how essentially like how does the how, how does uh, how do these Western nations uh, how do you kind of revive them? How, what do you affirm? what's the positive content of our ideology because it's not enough to just be talking about how bad other ethnicities are and the and negative impacts they have on our society. This is just all um, complaining essentially, um, but not proposing something a, a new project, a new direction. And this is i think a problem you get with a lot of the dissident right is that a lot of them are reactionaries and so they'll talk about how great feudalism was and monarchy was and all of these different ideas that yeah you, know, you can see why you admire them in their time uh, but they aren't relevant today because they're from a bygone era with completely different socioeconomic systems technologies um they just aren't translatable to a contemporary context and so we have to kind of come to terms with modernity i think and this is why i think sociology is important because it, we have to kind of come to terms with what specifically constrains us and uh, you know and and, and like actu- actualize the inherent potentials for modernity we have to become a kind of modernist movement in a certain sense um and that doesn't mean we abandon all pre-modern history but it's we, you have to kind of i think figure out well what's the logical step where like if modernity was going to be good and the western project was going to have um was going to progress in a positive direction towards the good you know what characteristics would it need to have and um i think that's why some of the things you've been uh, writing about lately um like that paper that you sent me which i'm sure will be released soon um was quite interesting because you kind of get into the idea, you know, as you mentioned earlier about how what was like specific about Western uniqueness um, that you can see in like Greco-Roman civilization um, was that, you know, the West specifically kind of saw logos or reason as a mechanism of organizing politics and like the birth of metaphysics and then like it getting translated into the Catholic religion uh, with its kind of metaphysical basis, particularly in like Aristotelianism and and how that kind of conditioned western ethical and political philosophy and came to define us as a people um that we came to see the state uh you know in in terms of well we we aren't going to be able to just appeal to different loyalties because if we just appeal to you know different like as you said clannish loyalties we're not going we're going to rip each other apart and we have you know common enemies we have common struggles we have uh higher aspirations and so reason uh, and and then I think Christianity continued this with, um, I mean, as I mentioned right, right at the beginning, like the role of Christianity in forming like English national consciousness. And I think this is also true about, um, you know, Irish national consciousness and various other kind of European nationalities um, is uh, you know, Western civilization created in a certain sense, like you could say universalist uh, ideologies, but they, they weren't universalist in the sense of um, like how globalism, so to speak, has taken the form of like you know universal human rights and no no kind of respect for the particularities of any one nation or state, um, but but simply um, you know trying to embed universal principles within like particular conditions, um, and and that was kind of the project of modernity. It wasn't as though like it. it liberalism was kind of always a universal ideology but it wasn't as though like that you know the liberals of the late you know 18th century you know they were really concerned with human rights in Africa for example uh you know because they kind of saw their kind of responsibility as kind of constrained to their particular people and their particular state and that's why when you talk about things like um ethnic separatism being a a kind of like separatist nationalism as maybe being a problem you got to kind of look at the geopolitical situation where it's like well we couldn't just break off a piece of america and be like that's kind of like white america now because um like it would be very like pragmatically it'd be very difficult to do that because you're kind of essentially creating a division within the most powerful country in the world this the kind of the, the elites of that country are not going to like that because it completely changes the geopolitical calculus they're going to be worried just like you were saying about the russians with the chechens well what if these people go and you know sign an alliance with beijing and then um you know start bringing in like military technology from they like, get nukes from the russians and have another cuban missile crisis type scenario or whatever and so you kind of have to be realistic about um the kind of structure of international security uh, and like you know like you can't just have ideologies that are just good in the abstract and think about what's actually feasible to pull off in like uh, a pragmatic strategic sense. And so it seems to me that what's necessary then is to kind of come up with something that can um, not necessarily unite the West into like one political blob. You could still obviously have different national sovereignties and um, different states and so forth. But I think we need to come up with a different state form like a, a kind of a set of principles that essentially could be universalized uh, as principles. Across, I mean, we can't really do have that across the West, but a different kind of uh, idea of what a Western state should be uh, that is more healthy um, and that can kind of meet the challenges of the 21st century, which uh, the West is now in a different position than it has been in for hundreds of years, because you know, during the industrial revolution, we were just so far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of economics and technology. We kind of dictated the world Uh, Where that's no longer the case now. Um, The rest of the world have kind of adopted a lot of our technologies, our techniques of, of, uh, you know, statecraft and so forth. And now we kind of just have to accept that, that the majority of the world can't be under our control. And, and actually, there's like hostility there. So we have to kind of erect boundaries. Um, And it seems as though we have the complete wrong boundaries, like we're trying to extend our control over the world to impose You know gay rights in afghanistan and and this kind of thing but at the same time opening our borders uh to you know the invade the world invite the world thing which is just obviously kind of ridiculous uh so we have to kind of figure out how to kind of go okay well this is going to be our sphere of influence and we're going to try and uh defend this part of the world so that we can kind of maintain our our civilization Uh, but that requires us actually having principles that we believe in and it seems as though like the, the kind of what's being offered by conservatism or you know what's called liberalism in the west you know progressivism these things are very uninspiring they have lots of ridiculous you know aspects to their ideologies a historical um uh you know nonsense in their kind of conception of, of of what the west is and so forth um and so that seems to me not that i have all the answers but something similar to what you're saying that we need to kind of come up with a positive vision for like western modernism um that at the same time uh you know has a kind of nuanced way of dealing with these questions of you know ethnicity and um the, the identity of of the governed with their governments um where you can say well okay well maybe like for example in australia if we're going to sign all these defense agreements with the Americans and have like nuclear subs and all this kind of stuff and be in these like, you know, sign uh, defense agreements with the Japanese or whatever. Maybe we shouldn't be importing a bunch of Chinese people into Australia. You know what I mean? Maybe it's not racist to say we should send them back. Um, uh, so, so like there has to be some way of, of kind of reasserting, I think like sanity. And I, and I think the way you do that is through um, not just like blanket ideological racism uh but but i kind of nuanced reasoned ideology for you know have, how to kind of like take care of the state's fundamental purpose which is security prosperity uh you know order and um having a kind of like virtuous uh like the promotion of of, of virtue and uh the natural good of its citizens which which i think uh, we're kind of lacking so i think you made a good point as well with the, the rise of the russian state i think more more importantly the rise of China, um, now that the West is meeting, it's kind of, I, I call it Cold, cold War too. I think we're already in the Second Cold War, and it's kind of like you've got the Russian-Chinese axis on one side, and then like the West on the other side, and then there's all these in-between states, like India kind of swings both ways, or the Turks maybe swing both ways, or whatever, but that's kind of the general state of play of the world, and... Uh, That's going to pose a challenge to Western elites where it's like, well, maybe continuing this kind of ridiculous state form and and ideology that we have now is not going to be functional, you know, when actually when you're actually in a Cold War, like having unipolarity, you can kind of like uh, run your um, you can kind of have ideological freedom to pursue whatever crazy ideas you want. But then once you actually meet a challenge like this, this imposes pragmatic structural constraints. And so perhaps we're kind of heading towards a crisis. Uh, We're heading towards a a time when a radical revision of the Western state form becomes possible. And I I guess it's our responsibility to kind of put something forward in time before that crisis comes so that we can actually have the distant right, can have something to say about what the next phase of the West is going to be like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I have always argued in favor of Western modernity and I have tried to find ways in, in which, I can show that the West was quite healthy and not long ago and it did not advocate uh, civic nationalism but it was actually uh, a cultural ethnic nationalism depending on what nation you're speaking of. So one of the arguments I have made is that uh, a strong nationalism is consistent with individualism and as I said earlier that uh, nationalism itself is a product of individuals coming together and trying to find an ideology that can uh, bring, them a co- bring them a common purpose with the secularization of the West and the end of tribal identities, uh, they came up with an, a, a national identity and that this was something that helped in the West up until the 1960s. Uh, Now, some could argue, people like Alain de Benoist and, of course, Dugin and others, that it was already implicit in liberalism that this national identity uh, would have to go because it has a collective view of things uh, which is inconsistent with individualism. So the West, yes, came up with the idea of human rights, which means that everyone around the world has the same human rights to belong to your nation. So that... Uh, breaks up any notion of a national identity. So it it is a very difficult thing, exactly uh, because I I have no doubt, and this is something that Dugin doesn't want to acknowledge, that uh, almost all the creativity in in the arts, in music, in science, and in all the fields of human endeavour Uh, came out of the European world. So, we have this incredible dilemma that the very ideology, individualism, that now we see as bringing an end to Western civilization was the ideology that not just made the West uh, the supreme civilization, but really uh, produced almost all the creativity. I mean, when you look at the disciplines, the disciplines of uh, geography, geology, biology, ge- you know, uh, the physics, you name it, history, um, they all come from the West and that says a lot. Uh, so this is something that I have argued, but right now uh, we are facing with a reality in which the West um, is, is, is really in a very incredibly pathological state And uh, it is led by American globalism. They're at the helm of it. And Europeans follow suit, uh, with the exception of a few little nations here and there that have their own national identities. And um, so I'm trying to think, uh, what are the ways right now? Uh, I don't think we're going to persuade anyone uh, with the idea that one should embrace, embrace some form of Uh, strong nationalism in the West uh, that emphasizes heavily uh, Western history and traditions and so on. Um, So what can be done right now? And the only thing I see is populism coming from the ground up. Um, Populism, the thing about it that makes it different from something like white nationalism is that it comes from the people so it means it is an expression of certain feelings habits mannerisms that are rooted in a people uh, and that makes it uh like strong uh it has it has roots um even crazy people like alex jones they have a lot of followers because they he speaks for these feelings he cannot articulate a cohesive of things, but he he expresses feelings that are very real out there. So that's what I see right now as the only possibility It's a kind of um, Trumpian uh, populism that that and the United States, as you know, is incredibly divided, is almost in a quasi-state of civil war. Uh, I don't see any resolution to that. And so um, to me, that's the way to go. Um, is is that kind of populism based
2: on what you said because you said you talked about individualism and i think i think individualism can mean different things just like nationalism can mean lots of different things and and, and when people hear the word individualism when the decision right today they think of things like trans rights or gay rights or um you know feminism uh you know infinite abortions this kind of thing um But this isn't obviously the only way to conceive of individualism right like if you you know go back to um you know concepts uh you know in the kind of emergence of liberal political philosophy if you go back to like rousseau and kant and these kinds of figures there was a concept of the individual as not just like the arbitrary and this is also related to their conception of democracy but it wasn't the individual wasn't just this arbitrary you know uh uh whatever whatever an individual feels that's their rights and there's no limitations the individual was a kind of was kind of embedded within a kind of abstract notion of a rational individual and a rational individual that was kind of uh constrained by what would would the transcendental conditions be for a bunch of rational individuals to exist within a legal state framework Um, in in which, you know, they could essentially have a a set of universal ethical principles that where they could kind of pursue their ends within, you know, social constraints that were kind of ethically reasoned, right? And it was based in a kind of a certain metaphysic. This is very different than just arbitrary individualism. And so so I think that's a very important distinction to make. And then, so I guess like it's like uh, the nation as such and its relationship to individualism, I think it becomes inverted when you think about it in this way. And I think that's ultimately why Hegel's political philosophy took the direction that it did um, where, you know, you can't really understand the individual as this kind of pre-societal entity in, in the kind of Hobbesian sense, you know, you have a social contract, uh, they all get together and negotiate. Uh, this is what a state would be if all of our liberties be protected and then kind of like surrender um, authority to this kind of contractual union that is kind of dismissed in hegelian philosophy and and it's inverted and instead the like individualism is kind of produced by um a certain project in history which is you know the project of of western society if you will um trying to develop this kind of dialectic of, of of its ethical principles with reason and so it is a kind of like a collective, of, of rash, a, a, a kind of like a rational collective culture that then produces individualism and its constraints and its interpretation. Um, and so in, in the sense, uh, it seems like what you're kind of arguing for is where you kind of see individualism as something produced by the nation rather than the nation produced by individuals. And that seems to be the key um, inversion of uh, the contemporary concept. And so i mentioned to get your thoughts on that. And also, I guess what I kind of see, because you mentioned populism, and it relates to this, uh, what I just said, uh, which is populism is all well and good. But I think the problem with uh, the Trump movement was that it was ideologically incoherent. And, and this is the problem in the managerial age, um, where, you know, I, I have an organizational realist view of the state, I don't think the state like some liberal sociologists, like consensus theorists, um, they kind of see state policy as well. You just kind of have um, a kind of social consensus emerges, internalized social values, and then magically this translates into how the society is organized. Um, There's like this emergent quality from individuals having certain values, then the society ends up just adopting those values. Instead, I kind of see, well, actually there are kind of managerial institutions that are kind of more integral to the various, uh, you know, aspects of how the state apparatus functions: the state machinery, military machinery, industrial machinery. And this managerial elite, they command, they commandeer educational institutions, communications, you know, communications, uh, uh, you know uh, forms and so forth. They kind of like dominate, uh, essentially, what the values of society are in in the kind of their concrete practice. They kind of impose them on society. And so you need to have a educated elite, a managerial elite that have a kind of rational ideological concept of an alternative state form to get one. It's not enough to just have, you know, a kind of wellspring of 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 kind of populist discontent. Um, you need to actually have a method of translation. And so I think like when it comes to, you know, you, you can kind of there's like certain vectors for this. You know, you can look at like foreign policy realism versus, you know, liberal international relations theory. You know, you can look at developmentalist uh, political economy versus like neoclassical political economy. You can see, um, you know, just a a kind of like a statist view um, versus a, a, this kind of more like spontaneous uh, order kind of view that gets expressed in in, in various, uh, you know, disciplines in the social sciences. I think a social scientific theory that emphasizes like a kind of constructivist managerial Uh, notion of the national state, I think this is something that we need to bring forward and supply to that popular sentiment to organize it and direct it and uh, for it to actually achieve anything. So, and that kind of relates to what I was saying before about how individualism is kind of product of culture. It's a product of society. It's, It's not something that comes prior to society. So it has to be kind of embedded within certain customs and rules and, and and institutional structures in order to actually be virtuous and produce the positive ends that western culture achieved and i would argue that's precisely because the west up until quite recently had a very sane and rational kind of concept of political science that goes all the way back to like aristotle for example um who who you know and you talk about this in the paper that you send me about like the kind of uh you know we have to kind of get together and have some kind of rational discourse to work out what laws our society should have. And so they have to, we have to kind of aim uh, you know, in an elementary form toward a kind of political, scientific or social scientific concept of the state. And that seems to be what the promise of modernity was supposed to be, this kind of like a wow. scientific politics as opposed to just simply a, um, you know, intuitive uh, ideology.
1: Yes, I mean, I I have never accepted the Anglo natural rights tradition and one of the criticisms that I made against people like Alain de Benoist and uh, Dugin is that that they view the Anglo model of individualism as uh, really what the West is about. And they don't take into consideration that there were nations like Germany that produced philosophers and a culture that was very different and that reacted against this extreme form of natural rights individualism. And they argue, as you just said, that, um, I mean, Hegel went through this entire history of individualism and then he produced a philosophy of political right whereby he showed or argue that you have civil society, yes, and in that civil society, you have individuals pursuing their own interests, uh, living their own private lives, and that's where the market operates. But that's not the entirety of a society. So he criticized the uh, English philosophers for assuming that that in itself constitutes the society, and then the state merely reflects that reality and tries to do the least it can, so they allow the free market to maximize uh, the welfare of everyone in, in the way Adam Smith saw it that the invisible hand, if you allow it to operate freely, brings about um, uh, the maximization of the well being of a society. So he rejected that and he clearly saw that um, there had to be this a state, a strong state. That reflects other values and traditions of the people uh, of uh, particular nations. And Fichte was another one. And so this is a very strong tradition in Germany uh, that I have always emphasized. And this is a kind of liberalism that I endorse. Uh, so it's a it's a communitarian liberalism. That term was taken in different directions. I mean, it was even used by people like Wilkin Lika and Charles Taylor to justify uh, multiculturalism. And it was was a very um, uneven way of approaching that tradition because basically they said that immigrants, they have these deep roots and traditions and customs and we shouldn't expect them when they arrive in the United States or Canada to assimilate to the culture here because their values, their heritage matters to them and that is something that is inherent to a human being to have a sense that you are not just an individual with rights acknowledged by the state, uh, but you're also a member of a collective and that this state has to acknowledge that community and their own ways of being, but uh, this People, Ken Leak and Taylor, did not want to make the same argument for the people who have been here the longest. They did not want to say, what about the culture of the people who created Australia? Should it not matter to them that they have a sense of collective identity to that culture? They're not just individuals discreetly pursuing their private interests, but they have all kinds of ways of being, uh, uh, songs and Um, habits and histories and memories that matter to them as members of a larger collective. And so my view was that if we use that Hegelian German heritage, uh, we can um, uh, produce a better theory of liberalism. It's it's a kind of liberalism that recognizes that it's not just about negative freedoms. The the Anglo-American tradition emphasized the idea of negative freedom, which is freedom from. uh, So you want to be free from the state. You want to be free from your race, from your ethnicity. And now we are saying you should be free from any sexual identity. And uh, as doing correctly says, even free from your own uh, 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 species, humanity, uh, so you create a whole new type of individual uh, in the world. And so, um, I, you know, one of the things, again, that I criticize Dugin very strongly is that he was equating the entire Western liberal tradition with this Anglo uh, perspective and that he was not recognizing the conception of positive freedom. That's the word they use. And Dugin also talks about this notion that it's not just about the individual being free but it's about an entire people say the russians being free to be russians to be proud of that heritage we are not free in that sense in our society if i were to say that i value uh, the heritage of, of canadians in the past and that it matters to me and that's why i oppose immigration or I want immigration restrictions I'm not free to say that so that means that that kind of positive freedom whereby uh, you affirm something that is larger than yourself um, and that it's part of your identity as Charles Taylor and Kim Licka said they said this this is something really important to human beings human beings cannot function as isolated abstract units so they sounded, wow, like these guys are really criticizing this old classical liberalism of atomized individuals. But it was only for the immigrants uh, that they said that. Um <clears throat> you know, there are variations between Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor is the more sophisticated uh, thinker who, who who actually says that in the case of Kim Lick, it's, it's a gradual process whereby... Eventually, the immigrants will sort of assimilate to, to the to the more classical individualist culture, whereas Taylor says, no, they may never want to assimilate to that. They may always want to retain their collective identity right here in Canada in the same way that he said uh, the Aboriginals should retain their collective identity to the point that they have uh, self-autonomy. Uh, so, They didn't want to extend that to European peoples uh, here in Canada, and the same goes for other European nations. So I have gone, I have written quite a bit about this, about Hegel, and I was always influenced by him because he, he argued from the beginning that the whole idea that we have this state of nature of individuals roaming around, he says it never existed, it could never be. A state of nature in which individuals are isolated, individuals are always members of our community, and individualism itself was a product of a particular historical heritage, and it has to be seen within that context. So, I mean, I, I understand all of these uh, arguments. I just think that right now we we are not persuading many peoples and that um, Something about the establishment, about thinkers like Taylor, they appropriate these ideas and they turn them in a leftist direction. They do this over and over again. So Hegel uh, uh, is, in many ways, is now dominated by leftist thinkers. They say, oh, well, he was talking about a community uh, uh, of welfare, like a socialistic community, and they don't want to emphasize the cultural, the ethnic, the folk side of what Hegel was saying. They want to say, oh, no, he wasn't really saying that. You know, it's a complicated argument that, that it would take more time to go over. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I I agree uh, with uh, what you're saying there. And uh, that's one of the criticisms. Just the other day, I, I reread a, a long article that Alain de Benoist has on liberalism, and he traces the whole history of of, of Uh, liberalism, and I found that it's too centered on this market-oriented Anglo and French to some degree conception, as if it were the only conception that the Western world produced. And they don't want to acknowledge that Germany really produced an incredible uh, philosophical set of arguments. Uh, to put forth, uh, because Hegel was really, really aware this was the central dilemma of the Western world. How can you have individuals uh, discreetly following their own lifestyles in a private way uh, and not have a sense of bringing them together to have a, a sense of meaning and purpose uh, that is larger than that private pursuit? And he he saw that that is something that is essential to what it means to be a human being. Uh, And at the same time, he situated that within the history of Europe. And some people go, well, that's the case with the Germans. The Germans were just different. They were always a more collectivist people, whereas the British uh, were not. And to some degree, uh, Dugin does make that distinction. He talks about the Atlantis' civilizations, the civilizations of the sea, and the civilizations of the land. And he recognizes that Germany is a civilization of the land. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, debate.
2: Yeah, I think another way of looking at it as well is that, uh, you know, if you consider England to be the first nation, it's almost as though it could take its, uh, because it's an island uh, that's unified, it can kind of take its collective identity for granted. And so it kind of went without saying, uh, so to speak, whereas yeah, like absolutely. in the German context, they're kind of defending G- Germany right. from all sides. And so it has to be made more explicit.
1: Yeah, that, that also has to be acknowledged. When when you read Locke and all these people, and yes, you can find passages here and there that they seem to th- Say that uh, these abstract individuals reach a contract on how to go about creating the kind of nation they want. But I think they took for granted that these were British individuals who were creating Mm. this contract. They were not envisioning Africans coming in and being part of the contract. If you had told them that, I mean, we know that the writings of the Enlightenment thinkers were very racist by our standards. So, um, yeah, I think they took that for granted. Uh, Nevertheless, the very notion of a state of nature that doesn't have a history and the individuals are contractual beings does give that image that uh, there is no... Yes.
2: Yeah, I think that's why, um, like I said before, I think we need to... Like, I kind of consider my politics to be a kind of like a managerial statism. And because I'm an Anglo-Saxon and I live in the Anglosphere, I kind of associate liberalism with that particular tradition of, you know, neoclassical microeconomic approaches that kind of build off the kind of Lockean, Hobbesian kind of conception yeah. of um, a political order. And I go, well, I, I reject this. Um Uh, But I understand that at its time, you know, it it kind of was able to kind of live off the fumes of already established collective identities that have now been kind of depleted. And so we have to kind of be more explicit. And obviously, um, things have changed. The society has become more centralized and bureaucratized. And so that's why I I kind of view a, um, a kind of strong conception of the state, which is a problem with the right. The conservatives are kind of because they have this like they're defending. Anglo-liberalism, they're kind of defending the limitations of the state as being good things and view the state as like the kind of um, the cause of the ills of society, whereas I kind of uh, view it in the opposite way. I kind of see that the um, the kind of uh, weaknesses of the kind of central managerial authorities over the state are kind of the cause, because that's what's enabled you know, uh, minority ethnic groups, let's say, Uh, the one in particular, as well as um, particular kind of financial interests and so forth to pursue and and kind of fund into existence um, this kind of globalist uh, ideological kind of stack of the sexual revolution and, um, you know, multiculturalism and uh, liberal hegemony uh, as a kind of foreign policy and so forth. Um, This kind of is all driven by this particular uh, set of elites that that don't actually have uh, genuine patriotism. They don't actually identify with um, the national form and its logic, but they uh, have clear like ethnic and class uh, and personal interests um, that that motivate uh, their actions. And so I, I think these types need to kind of be they shouldn't be able to kind of run the politics of a nation and unfortunately i feel as though kind of anglo-liberalism doesn't really provide a defense against that because it kind of assumes well everyone's just pursuing their their um you know personal interests and no one is pursuing the national interest and that very concept of a kind of national interest is almost seen as like communism or something because it would justify the state supervening upon individuals doing whatever they want and obviously this has this isn't what England was like in the 18th century. England did function in in its national interest in many key instances. Um, So clearly, but that was lost. That was broken up over a period of time. And the old, I mean, the the old WASP elite that run America no longer exist. Um, You know, the the complete degeneration of, of British elites and so forth. Um, And so we need to kind of like rebuild, I think, a kind of uh, managerial authorities And I think we can only really do that out of the social sciences um, and out of a kind of more exclusive appeal to like a collective national identity. So I think like these German thinkers, uh, I would also include Carl Schmitt um, as a kind of key thinker in in that stack. Um, That's why I think they're so important for to kind of like reorient our kind of conception that because you get this a lot with the right wingers where they kind of view all of modernity kind of like you say with Dugan all of you know Western modernity is just this one particular strand of thought and this one direction but there are so many other heterodox schools and, and different interpretations you can't collapse it all into just like this one yeah we, project.
1: We just from the Russian perspective, that's what he sees. He sees the neocons trying to undermine Russia. So I can see that he, he that's that's the world he sees. And the truth is, they are the ones with global power right now. It's not the Hegelian perspective.
2: Yeah, of course. But anyway, I think you you we've gone for two hours, so maybe we can end it here. But that was enjoyable. Maybe another time we can do something similar. But uh,
1: thanks for coming on. All right, yes, it was good uh, talking to you, Joel, and yes, I mean, we can do another discussion. I like what you guys do, that you engage in intellectual discussions rather than the same thing about, you know, black mayhem. (laughs) (laughs) It becomes depressing just reading that stuff all day long, and I think, um, you know, there's so many intellectual resources in the West that the West has produced. And uh, that it it needs to be continuously emphasized and and read and reread. And there's so many of them.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. Well, like I said, I mean, my idea of if we're going to actually translate um, our sentiments into political power, that this is the direction that we have to go. We have to um, go into the social sciences and into political philosophy in general and, and work out a program that can be reasoned towards to build a coalition because obviously we don't really have any structural power at the moment and so the only way that we can kind of build up um any kind of coherence any kind of organizational coherence i think is through any kind of uh rational scientific approach so yeah. it seems like but yeah thanks for coming on man